Now here it is, 51% of young Americans say they feel down, depressed, or hopeless. There's a little asterisk there for young, in case you're wondering, well, who's young? Well, in this particular survey, it was ages 18 to 29. So if you're under 30, you just made it, and you're still young. I told you a couple weeks ago that uh, you're still considered a youth at 40 in the Bible. So, yes, okay. Uh, okay, on top of that, though, 44%, so the last one was about people that feel hopeless, okay? But 44% ages now even younger, 14 to 24, say they are not hopeful about the future. So that's an, that's an interesting statistic because the future isn't defined in, in this uh, case. It just says, hey, if you start looking forward, uh, how do you feel about it? And they say they are not hopeful. They would not describe themselves as hopeful. Now, I, I got to thinking about this, and so I wanted to do sort of a, a connection to that and think about, now there's a lot of reasons why somebody may or may not be hopeful. But um, another statistic uh, from another survey uh, surveyed people's ideas about uh, heaven or hell or the afterlife. And 73% uh, of people believe in heaven and 62% of people believed in hell. Now that's a, that's a funny disparity if you think about it because that means more people believe there's a heaven without a hell and for logical reasons, right? Okay, but of that group, now here's what, where it gets, uh, if you drill down the same study, 26% uh, of the people that responded were agnostic, meaning they don't really believe in a God, but they still like the idea of a heaven and hell. Meaning, uh, there's, some, there's something beyond this, right? Their, their concept of an afterlife still exists. And even 3% of atheists have detached any idea of heaven and hell from uh, the idea of God, or if there is a God, okay? Now, there's a, of, of the subset of people that weren't included in the, yes, I believe in heaven and hell or something else, there's only 17% of people who believe in total like cessation, annihilationism. There is no afterlife of any kind, heaven, hell, or otherwise, reincarnation, some kind of thing, right? 17% of people uh, of that, that small subset do not believe in an afterlife of any kind. Now, on top of the depression statistics and the ideas about hope and um, people's ideas about heaven and hell, I, I have one more interesting um, study because it has to do with the fact of uh, our perspective about the future in life. So, uh, medically assisted uh, oh, death. I think my, uh, my battery's down. Somebody wants to grab. Oh. Uh, a new set for me. I'll grab this mic here. <laughs> medically, uh, medically assisted suicide in Canada has existed for a while, but in 2023 it was extended to also include. Um, well, that's supposed to be chronic disease, not chronic disease, but it could be that. That might be even worse than chronic disease. <laughs> For chronic diseases, ages, and mental illness. So, so think about this. Before, it, um, it, it was just for like a chronic illness. But now, they, they say, well, if you're just old and you don't feel like there's much left to live for, that's okay. We'll help you die. Or if um, your, mental, your state of mental wellness uh, is in such a state that you just feel like it's not worth it, that's okay will help you die. It doesn't matter how old you are or if there's anything preventing you from living the rest of a full, healthy life. Now those are some interesting statistics because they show the connection between hope and life and the future and even how long the future might be, right? So if you, I want you to kind of connect these ideas. Your, your idea about what is in the future and your hopefulness in what's going to occur in the future, if, if you lose all sense of the, any promise or positivity, you're going to uh, maybe decide that you don't want to live anymore. And so there's many reasons why people might feel this way. Now these statistics 
were pre-COVID. So that's interesting because now that, that's even gone up more because uh, young people feel more depressed about things. And so, so these statistics are just meant to project for you. I want to make that connection between hope and the future. And so if you, if you want to ask, well, what is it that I think about when, I, when I'm looking for and I'm projecting hope into the future, has um, something directly to do with how much future um, you think you have. So I have here a, uh, this is the yardstick, if you have, I mean, you guys all went through elementary school when this was actually used, and <laughs> this was around, right? So there's, there's uh, you know, there's three feet on this, right? And um, so there's uh, 36 inches, and uh, I wonder if you were to ask something like, if this was the measurement of your life, okay? And I said, and you, and you were to project somewhere along the ruler, and, and whatever's left on the other side of this ruler is um, your, the, the remaining part of your, your life, your existence. And however much you had left on the end of that would have something to do with how hopeful you are about the future. Are you, are you checking with that for just a second? So while I switch batteries and plug this in, I want you to think, if I was holding this, this ruler, I was holding this meter, this yardstick, and I was trying to plot somewhere along this yardstick where my life is right now, where I'm at in terms of future or past or uh, progressing along this, this ruler, where would I, where would I put that, okay? So many were looking around. Try that again. Hey, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> All right, let's see how my last hell skills are. Yeah, first try. Okay, all right, okay. Now, uh, now the elephant in the room here is, is not really about afterlife. It, it actually t terminates on your point of, of death, right? Because if, if your life is somewhere along this, this ruler, Right? And some of you, I'll do it for you to make sense. So I'll say, this is the past and this is the future. Okay? And some of you are hopeful that you're somewhere in here or even more over here, right? Yeah. But some of you kind of know, like, you're, you're getting up there, right? And, and the question is, with what's left here, you know, like, how good do you feel about what's left here? And, and does that make you hopeful? And the thing about this is, here's the case. It works. Now, when, when everything's, oh, you get the sense. Okay, so when everything's balanced out, you know, there's nothing necessarily in the past weighing us down, and there's nothing in the future that we're necessarily looking for. Everything's going to balance out. But as soon as this gets out of proportion and our future gets a lot shorter than we, it used to be, right, what's going to naturally happen, right? It's going to weigh down. It's going to weigh down this way. It's going to fall out, right? And so the sense of, of hope uh, really is, now hear me quickly, is the counterweight to your perspective in life, okay? So regardless of what's over here, if I were to, to, if I were to put a weight over here, which I will later, but if I was to put a weight over here, and I, and I said that's hope, and, and then no, no matter like how far over we got, if there was enough hope over here, it would still balance. Are you tracking with the illustration right now? Yes. Okay, I'm going to leave that for now. So our sense of what the future holds, and maybe like how much future there is, and, um, and then like what kind of weight, what kind of weight is in our hope, it makes all the difference 
in the world. And so this morning we're getting to the idea of the resurrection. The, um, I said that the, term, the terminal point here is the question of death, right? That's the, that's the elephant in the room. And I don't even want to get to the, the question of resurrection just yet because if you, if you looked at the statistics, uh, people aren't really necessarily thinking about the, the resurrection. They're thinking about heaven and, and hell and, and sort of this disembodied existence. So the idea of hope and death are somewhat antithetical, right? If you, if you start talking about death, and then you know, there's not a lot of hope in that, in that concept. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. Somebody might just be on the far end of their stick, right? And so there's a lot, they feel like they got a lot to go. And maybe there's like some youthful bliss, some youthful ignorance. And so they, they, they're, they're not feeling hopeless, right? They just go, hey, there's, there's a lot to come. And so there's some youthful ignorance in the fact that they can, they can hope in spite of the fact that they know that this, this death thing is coming somewhere along the way. Or maybe it's just denial in general. It is knowing that you are, um, you're, you're mortal and that you will die eventually, but you just don't put your mind on that thing. And that ties to a second reason why hope and death might, might, might be able to, to interlock is because you, you might be in denial because you're distracted with other stuff. You have enough stuff that you've surrounded yourself with and enough things that occupy your thoughts or that, that console you about the fact that there's maybe not very much of the ruler left that you feel good about that. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be hope, it's just enough enjoyment on the back end to weigh it down, right? And so you're okay with that, so it's a distraction. And the other thing might just be a, a, a philosophical thing that allows you to say, well, I know that this is all there is. I know that this mortal life is all I have, and after that, there's nothing. That was that very small subset of people, that 17% that say there's, there's nothing. Now. If you have that mindset, then, then you're okay. And you would say, hey, this life is all I have, and so I've got to live it to the fullest. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, which we've kind of been dancing around, which Devin read this morning, is the examination of hope, but it grounds it in something important, the, the resurrection. And perhaps surprisingly to us, Paul actually agrees with the statistics that say, if all we have is this life, then Christians, more than anyone else, are to be pitied. Why? Because we're not living for the, the, the fullness of joy in this life. We're not supposed to be anyway, right? So Paul says, if, if all you have is right now, then, then we should be pretty sad about things. So, so he actually agrees with the people that say, well, just eat, drink, and be merry, because this is all we have. But we should be living in a way that reflects um, that our hope is, is, has a much longer runway and that there's a lot more weight on that side of it than there is regardless of how much is left of our particular yardstick. So what I'm trying to do this morning is focus on the resurrection and why that is an important piece of your living now. He doesn't just say the resurrection is out there somewhere, so, so be, a good, be a good cheer, right? He, he grounds your, your living hope, your everyday, good morning, I have a reason to be joyful today. And, and not mire into depression or hopelessness is grounded in the resurrection. So the question of resurrection, I think, becomes of paramount importance. And it's one of those topics, we always hit at Easter, but at Easter, we always hit it from 40,000 feet, right? Because we've got all the people here that may or may not have a lot of biblical backgrounds, so we really stay pretty superficial. And so we get this really macro view of the resurrection, right? Hooray, Jesus was raised, but then you don't get the implications of why that's important into your heart. And so I thought this morning was a perfect opportunity for that. Why? Because Paul hangs his argumentative hat on the resurrection. He's been before these philosophers, these pagan people who, who don't have any sense of 
the theology behind a resurrection or a belief in a resurrection, and he yet still hangs his hat on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so there's no reason why we ought not to be able to do that in the same way. So let me pray for us this morning. We're talking about living hope. We are still in Acts 17, and I'll be reading verses 30 through 33 this morning. Father, I pray this morning that indeed you would help us to um, see your truth in the word. Father, you would help us to have hope in grounding our lives and our hearts and our, and our thoughts in um, what is accomplished in the resurrection of Christ. Father, that you would use this um, teaching, uh, that it would not be my words, but it would be your truth only. Uh, keep me from there. Father, open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, and our ears to what you would speak this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, Acts 17, uh, verses 30 through 33. And here we go. It says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, let me push pause there just so I can make sure everybody's on the same page, right? This is the culmination of Paul's argument. He's been arguing that uh, before the philosophers there, and the resurrection is actually the thing that got him in this place. Remember, they say he's preaching foreign divinities, uh, he's preaching something about Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was preaching two different gods. And so they're like, we wanna hear more about this. So now he's before this high court, the Areopagus, and now he's sort of summing up his argument. Now I'll continue. Since the time of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's important. By raising him from the dead, he's given assurance of what he just claimed, and it says in verse 32, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. Now, just briefly, uh, I'm asking you to um, not come at this from the biblical mindset, which is never what I ask you to do. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to set that down for just a second because you have to put yourself in the place of these pagan ideas and the worldly perspective. And so someone who falls in this category of thinking of there's no afterlife, there, there is no resurrection. That's why when they hear of the resurrection, they go, we don't, we don't, we don't know what, what you're saying, Paul, but we don't, we don't care what you have to say. So normally I wouldn't encourage this, but I want you to see there's something important to what Paul has said. In verse 31, he says, uh, he carefully uses the term that there was a man, a man who's been appointed. A man who will be the righteous judge, a man who is the proof and assurance, and a man who was raised from the dead. So for the pagan, for the atheist, for the agnostic, for the pantheist, for the Buddhist, for any other ist you want to put in there that's not Christian, all the rest, this destroys their ideas about the afterlife. Okay? Now, I just want to remind you, there's, he's before the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they have met on this idea, or they come together on the fact that chance and reason govern life, the universe is consistent or constant, it's, it's got something governing it, but there is no afterlife of consequence. There is the gods who are removed on Olympus, or there's God in the world and in creation, but there is no the God, and so there's no real afterlife. It is this life alone. But Paul's asserting that a man, a flesh and blood human being, died, was dead, and then came back to life. And this is a worldview wrecking idea. He has carefully used 
um, this term. And we're going to talk about the implications of that. But um, some like four to five hundred years before this, there was a, a playwright. And he wrote a, a play um, called Eumenides. And in this play, I'll just sum it up for you. Um, a man kills his, uh, kills his mother because his mother killed his father. And, uh, and so he's, he's, he's trying to escape uh, judgment for this. And eventually he winds up being defended by the, the god, Apollo. And so what happens at the end of this play is that Apollo goes to the Athenian high court. And he goes and he pleads the case and he says this. There is no resurrection, right? He says, death is the end. There is no resurrection. And he says, that is why justice must be done here in this life. So what he's done essentially is he's defended the, the, the man who killed his mother because his mother killed his father. And so he's saying, There's, it's got to be a life for a life. And this, this, this justice must be exacted in this life. And this was the founding of the very court that Paul is now in front of, the Areopagus. So this play is about this, the formation of the court and the idea of justice being done in the world and, and why and how they should meet that out and why they should meet it out. And he says, look, death is the end. That's, that's the end point. There's a terminus on the stick. And after that, there's nothing. Therefore, justice must be exacted here and now. And so for the pagan, this is a problem. If a man, flesh and blood, is resurrected, then death is not the end. And this flies as a direct contradiction in the face of all philosophies. If he was dead, and he isn't dead anymore, this is an incontrovertible, inconvenient fact. And every, just like creation, just like how did material come from nothing, this is something that must be reckoned. If you have an idea, a philosophy, a theory, a scientific law, it must conform to the idea of total, total consistency, meaning there can't be an exception. If tomorrow you go out and you stumble and fall up instead of down, and for this one time gravity didn't work, you've now proven an exception to gravity. And now you have a choice. I have to deal with this exception, okay? And to deal with the exception, there's, there's only two choices. You either say, my, my explanation of what gravity is, is incorrect, or this is an exception. This is an exception to the rule, and here's why. So if you take that same idea, so it's either gonna falsify your worldview, that a dead guy is alive again, or it's going to say, well, there was an exception. So if you say, well, Jesus is, is the exception because um, he wasn't really a man. Okay, well, now you, you have to deal with the fact that he, he, was, uh, he was a physical form, he was attested by many, he was killed on the cross, this is all uh, historical information. Or you have to say, well, he wasn't a man, but he was God. And so that's why he was the exception to the rule of death. Right? And so either way, you have a problem in your worldview because it's no longer consistent. So the rule of exception is important to the reality of who Jesus actually was. Because in most people's conception of the afterlife at this point was this idea of like this spiritually disembodied floating into nothing, which is sometimes what people think about when they think about heaven or hell, right? It is this disembodied uh, floating on clouds forever, that kind of idea. And, and that's not far off of the, the root of it, which is in Greek philosophy. But Jesus is both God and man. So he fits the exception and he fits the rule. And so either way, you have to deal with who Jesus really was. So the fact that Jesus came and put on flesh, God, man, he put on flesh and really was a human being is something that must be dealt with. And that's why Paul is so careful to say that a man was, was appointed judge. 
And he will righteously judge everyone. And he actually died. And he was actually raised to life. I can't understate the importance of the fact that Jesus was a flesh and blood human being. There's no shortage of evidence for, for Jesus' life. It is the most well-attested historical fact in the world, ever, in history, in recorded history. All of his birth, his, his life, his friends, all of the works that he had done is recorded in Scripture. There is attestation to who he was outside of Scripture. Jesus was a real flesh and blood human being. His death is also recorded inside and outside of Scripture. And most importantly, and here's, here's the deal, the, the same man who was killed on a cross and put in a tomb is the same guy who gets up three days later in a body. It's a different body, but it's the same body. And that's important. That's the key of the resurrection. It's a different body, but it's the same body. Jesus came back to life. He walked around for 40 days. He appeared to many. At one time, more than 500 people, as Paul says. And he says, if you don't believe me, go ask some of them because they're still alive. And then he, he did, he said he presented many infallible proofs. He ate fish. He had holes in his body. He, he, he was flesh and blood. He appeared to many people. After his ascension, he had a body. The physical resurrection tells us um, that, that death is not the end. It's not the end of our being, meaning your, your, your life, who you are, your being or your body. Though your body will go be sewn into the ground for a while or a cave or lost at sea or your physical body is going to go somewhere. But eventually our hope is in something called the resurrection. What type of body will we have is this question Paul poses to himself so that he can answer it. Well, he says, well, what's sown perishable, this flesh and blood mortal thing, will be raised imperishable. It'll be a different kind of body, but it'll be, it will be raised. That's important. Because it's not a spiritually disembodied existence forever and ever. It is an embodied physical existence. Now, wrap your minds around that for just a second. So it says, this laughter life, that whatever you have the conception of, is going to be not just an idea of blissful, angelic, you know, spiritual nothingness. It is an experience much like what we have now, but way better and something that we can't nearly fathom in ourselves. In Philippians 3, um, uh, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so we wait, our, our Savior, our hope is in the transformation of our body like it is now, but into something greater. Okay, now the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, just write it down this morning for your notes or whatever. 1 Corinthians 15 is important for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 are all good about the resurrection and the nature of it. Because Paul answers a lot of questions that we sometimes have about these things. But he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, after he says, look, if we only have hope for this life, we should be pitied. But he says, we, because we'd still be dead, because Christ would, would not have risen himself. And we've been preaching that the resurrection is the, is the vindication of, of, uh, of Christ in his, in his person. It is the proof that, uh, of, of his being, who Jesus really is. And it is the fact that he was raised for our sins. But he goes on in verse 20 and he says, but if in fact Christ has been raised, okay? If he has been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the first fruits here is important because it is an agricultural term that just means he's the first in a kind 
of um, crop. And everything else in that crop is going to be what? Like the first fruits. So if Jesus is the first in kind of what we're going to be like, then that tells you what the nature of the resurrection body is. It is, it is sown perishable and raised incorruptible. It is an eternal kind of being. So it's not just a spiritual idea. I keep reiterating that because I think it's really important for you. Because most of us think we're going to die and go to heaven forever and ever. Now you're going to die and you might be in heaven for a while. If you've fallen asleep in Christ, then at the end when Christ returns, he brings heaven down to earth and he's accompanied with all those who have fallen asleep in him. And then he inaugurates the eternal state where we do live forever and ever with heaven and earth all consummated together. But it says in verse 21 that he says, for as by a man came death. Again, he's using this term to, to point to the fact that Jesus was a mortal flesh and blood human being because God can't die unless he took on humanity to himself. So Christ has been raised from the first fruits. He's like us and he was raised also in bodily form, in a glorified bodily form. And as a man came, uh, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. That, that first man is Adam, and the second man is Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is an important um, point. So Paul was arguing before these philosophers and, and, and you know, whatever the, the intellects of the day, okay? And he's arguing before them, and he said something uh, important. He said, from, from one man, God has made every nation and he, he had defined the places where they dwell, and he had done all that for a specific purpose. He says, from one man came every nation. He was talking about Adam, but the, the, the key to the term there is that it says from one blood, interestingly. From one blood came every nation and tongue that is spread across the world. And the argument here is that the reverse of that happens in Christ. In Christ is also one man who will um, unite all Every nation, tribe, and tongue will come and worship the Lord as Lord eventually. And so it's in his blood whether or not we, we do that as united to him or as a foe to him. So the headship of Christ just means that he is our representative, just as Adam was our representative. He's the representative human being. And Adam, all die because you're born after his likeness. And your, your flesh and blood body will die one day if Jesus doesn't come back before then. But in, in Christ... All, um, all shall be made alive. Again, so in Christ, all are resurrected. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, so also death has passed on to all men, because all sinned. All sinned in Adam. But in Christ, all are made alive. All those who are born to Adam die because of sin. That's, that is the cause. It says the sting of, of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. You get the idea. That's the just that's the, the just report from um, who God is because sin has, has earned the wage of death. So the first, the first man, Adam, became a living being, says 1 Corinthians later in verse 45. He became a living, living being, but then the last Adam, that's Christ, became the life-giving spirit. So why, why, is, why am I banging this? Because what the resurrection proved is that sin is judged in Christ's death. It is the proof of it. The resurrection of Christ is proof that sin and its effects are broken. Sin was definitively judged in Christ, and the resurrection is the proof that it was judged, that it was actually taken care of. It is the receipt, if you want to think about it that way. It is the receipt of payment 
by God to Christ. It was paid in full. So he's given the token of that and the assurance of the satisfaction of the ledger. Now, I'm, I'm going to read through the implications of this real quick. In Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. That's what Paul said before this court. Look, there's going to be a day God has fixed it where he will judge everyone through Christ. And how is he doing that? Well, he's, he's judging them because Christ was already judged on our behalf. So the question is whether or not you were vindicated in that judgment or not. Okay, so Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That just means he was turned over because of our sins. But he was raised for our justification. That is, that is that's saying when he was raised, that proves that we were justified, that the sins actually were um, taken care of. Romans 8.1. There is no judgment, though, for those that are in Christ. Okay, now track with this. Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man to die and then judgment. But in Christ, there is no judgment. Why? Because judgment has already taken place. The resurrection is the assurance of that. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him um, has sent me already has eternal, eternal life. It's already given to you. It is a past tense reality. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again die. Christ being raised from the dead never again will die. Death no longer has dominion over him. So, Christ is raised from the dead is the proof, the vindication uh, of uh, our sins being taken care of. And there's many more implications of it um, that I'll get to in just a second. And I, I'm not trying to, there's so many that it would distract you to talk about all of them, okay? What I want you to key in on is the importance of the fact that in Christ, you don't incur, you don't come underneath judgment because there's a promise of life because Jesus has already resurrected. So in verse, we're continuing still in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 23 it says, but each in his own order. So we're talking about Christ being raised, Adam, first man, Christ, second man, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, okay? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and power and authority. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Now, the resurrection is the proof of sins, effects being broken and taken care of. So if Christ is raised, then we don't have hope only in this life. And that's the line of reasoning that Paul started with and why he's why he's making the case at all. If you are thinking that this is all I have, then you're going to live like this is all I have. Now you might have some vague idea that somewhere in the future, well, I'll live again, right? And so that's, that's like hopeful, but that doesn't really give me hope for right now. Like I'm not excited about that. And you might have a lot of reasons for that, but I want you to see, I'm going to just bullet point real quick, the truth of if the resurrection is true, and it is true, and what that means. If there is a resurrection of Christ, then there is a resurrection of us. There's a resurrection of all. And our preaching and our faith is not in vain. He says, if we've been declaring that Christ is, is, is risen and he's not, then that's a, that's a foolish and vain hope to hold out before you. But he is risen. So it's not. There's substance to it. It's truth. And if God raised Christ by the Spirit in Jesus, then that authority is given to him and he can give it to whoever he wills to give that to and you are not in your sins. He says, if, 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 if Christ is, is dead and he's still not, not risen, then there's no way to know whether or not he paid. It's like, 
If, if he had said to the disciples, I'm going to the cross to pay for your sins, and then he died, but he didn't come back, we're like, did it work? Right? Do you see the, like, he's raised because it worked, okay? So those who have perished in Christ are still alive. That's important. Those who have fallen asleep is the, 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 the euphemism that's being used here. So in this truth, so many other aspects of our faith take their root. There is a resurrection. It's a physical body res- resurrection. Preview is the preview of the new creation. When Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. This is what the newness looks like. The power of sin is broken. The grave is conquered. Heaven itself is opened to flesh and blood. Ultimate authority and power are all given to Christ and they're displayed in the resurrection. Jesus is given the only name by which men can be saved. The name that is above every name. The judgment of sin is accomplished. The wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus is the established as the final and second Adam who can give life. Jesus is the true and obedient son of God. God's word is confirmed, affirmed, and, and give substance to. It's like all the prophetic things that said, this is what the Messiah would do, that's all confirmed in Christ, and Jesus' identity also confirms that. All that happens in the resurrection. New creation is defined as both physical and spiritual, where the consummation of all things take place. It establishes and secures and assures our inheritance and hope. The proof of reconciliation between us and God, the proof of justification, for our sins, the proof of judgment taking place on our behalf. It displays God's love for the Son and His love for us in Christ. It moves for our benefit while we were still enemies, and the nature of death itself is exposed, which is that it is not the end. Now I said you might have some vague idea of this like disembodied hope for the future, but that doesn't seem to weigh out the stick for you, right? Like, for us, we're thinking about things like this, and we're not sure like how far along the track we are. And eventually when this weight gets out of, out of bounds, things get out of bounds. And we're like, yes, there's a hope, but it's way out here and it's not connected to anything I'm doing right now. I don't feel in that hope, okay? You're not alone. And Jesus helped us with this idea in the resurrection. In John chapter 11 is a familiar story for us this morning. I'm going to abbreviate it, and just highlight some important aspects of it. So John chapter 11 deals with Lazarus' death, the death of Lazarus, and the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, it's a resuscitation because this isn't the final resurrection. It's, get, get it? Um, what's happening in this moment for Jesus is he's giving a, a preview of the coming attraction. It is the trailer that you get to go see. Uh, you know, you go watch a movie, and the trailers come on, and you're like, hey, that looks good. That's what's happening, Okay? He's giving a preview of what the resurrection is going to be. Now, that's unbeknownst to the people in this story, but Jesus knows. So in, in chapter 11 of John, it says this, A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, from, uh, uh, in the village of, of Martha and his and her sister Mary. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with, her, um, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And um, his sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, the, the one who you love, that's important. The one who you love is ill. So Jesus loves Lazarus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, when Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus, okay? Hear that again. What is Jesus' motivating factor here? His love for them. But it says, when he hears this, he decides to delay. 
he hears that Lazarus is ill on the brink of death, and it says he decides to stay two days longer in the place where he was. He's nearby. He hears that Lazarus is on the brink of death. He says, I love those guys. I'm going to wait. Think about that for just a second. I love them. I'm not going to come just yet. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to kill you. And he says, look, Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go back. And the, Jew, the disciples don't think this is a great idea because they were last there. They tried to kill Jesus. Jesus says, listen, it's not a problem, okay? That's, that's effectively the next few verses. Um, so in verse 16, Thomas basically throws up his hands and he goes, look, I guess we'll follow him there and we'll also die with him, okay? So there's the resolution. We're going to go back to Bethany. It says, when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Not a surprise to Jesus. Obviously, he delayed knowing that this was going to happen. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, and um, Martha and Mary are, are mourning. They're in a period of mourning, and this mourning lasts for an extended time. It was, it was like part of just the culture to deal with death. But she comes out, and it says, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. That's in verse 20. And Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, listen to this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Mar Martha and Mary and Lazarus are loved by Jesus. And they're questioning here, why would you do this? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, here's where I just want to spend a couple moments. She says, I know that God will give you whatever you want, but what I want is for you to have been here two days ago, four days ago at this point. I wanted you to already have been here because I know that you could have fixed this. I know that if you had done what I needed you to do, what felt like the weight of my life or Lazarus's life, you would have fixed this thing. You would have balanced this problem out. You would have made sure that what I, what I needed to be over here on the other side was there so that I was okay and my life was in balance. And Jesus is trying in this moment to help them see the fullness of the truth about life because they're looking at it from, from, from the wrong perspective. Now, there's a, there's a uh, comic. I don't know if it's from like the far side or something. And it asks, the, it's like the idea of like, why didn't, why didn't Noah kill the mosquitoes on the ark and we would have never had mosquitoes, right? Like, why, why didn't he take care of the thing when it could have been taken care of and it wasn't really a problem? Now, if you take that same concept and you ask it of Jesus, and you said, when Jesus was here, he didn't take care of everything that there could have been to quote-unquote take care of. He didn't heal every person. He didn't go um, to the temple and correct their false teachings. He didn't, like, write commentaries on the Old Testament to, to help them see what was true. He didn't feed every person that was hungry. He didn't make sure that the poor had money forever and ever and ever. He didn't take care of the things that you and I think that ought to be taken care of. Like that's what Jesus is here for, right? But obviously the thing that Jesus was here for is not the same thing that we think or value. And Jesus did all that the Father asked him to do. He fulfilled everything that God the Father told him to do in, in totality. There was never anything that slipped through the cracks, something he should have done that he didn't, okay? So if everything that Jesus did was a fullness of what he was supposed to do, that tells us that there, there, there's some valuation issues in our own hearts and our own lives. So she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that, you, that, that, um, that whatever you ask, God will give you. So Jesus says to her, listen, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, 
I know, like, okay, get the, get the feeling here. She's not happy. This isn't like, I trust you, Jesus. This is, I'm mad at you, Jesus. So when he says, look, your brother will rise again, she thinks he's, he's talking about this thing that doesn't really matter, that it's disconnected from my life right now. Yeah, I know that he's going to rise in the resurrection. That's what she affirms on the last day. And Jesus said to her, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Get that. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. This thing that you think about is so far away is right here, right now. It's standing before you. I know, um, she said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's Lazarus. Though, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's everybody else that's standing here now that believes. Do you believe this? He asked her. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Okay, give me just a second. What Jesus is doing in this moment, I don't know what your theology of duct tape is, but um, I think it makes a decent application. Jesus is taking this big, Thing that is much weightier than our lives. And it's this thing that we think is so far removed and disconnected that it doesn't matter. Right? And he's with his spiritual duct tape, whatever that is, the Holy Spirit, right? It's always good for everything, whenever it's needed. Okay? He's taking Martha's perspective and he's saying, oh boy, can I get that off? Right, he's strapping it to her life right now, okay? Would you grab me a pair of scissors so that doesn't just hang here? Okay, look, here's what he's doing. He says it doesn't matter what point of the, of, the, of the meter stick you're at. It doesn't matter because this is always going to be much weightier. And listen, there's lots of weights that happen in our lives. And so, left hand and scissor cut. No. <laughs> there. The Holy Spirit is sticky. That ought to also be a lesson. Okay. What Jesus is trying to do is secure our lives to the idea of eternity. He says, look, I am the resurrection and the life, okay? And it doesn't matter if you put lots of weight, okay? There's all kinds of things that we get into our life that seem to weigh us down. But it doesn't matter how many of these things that I clip over here, it's never gonna outweigh what's over here. And suddenly it turns the trials of the things, like all the concerns that you think are the reason to weigh this side down, that I say, I don't have any hope over here. There's no hope over here because it's not connected to anything longer than whatever I can accomplish on this side of life. And sometimes the things that you hope for end up being the disappointments over here that weigh you down, right? And they make you say, I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not hopeful about anything because I'm so disappointed over here. Regardless of where this lands, it seems to tip things out of balance. And Jesus is wrapping or securing her right now disappointment into eternal life. And he's going to do it by, by showing her this picture as he raises Lazarus. And what the amazing thing is that it gets repeated not by just Jesus, 
but also by Peter and also by Paul, is that what this does is it takes these, these tragedies, these trials, these problems, and it makes them, he says, it has an eternal weight of glory that outweighs whatever's over here. And it actually moves these things over here so that it's even, it's even weightier than you think it is right now, but it's on the other side of it. Now, forgive me for the mess for just a second. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's trying to get her to see that it's not as disconnected as she's making it. Everyone who believes in me won't die. You don't come under judgment. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, there's some more exchange that takes place. And then Mary comes out, and she says the exact same thing that Martha did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus weeps. We, we know that uh, verse because it, it's, it's famous, right? But Jesus raises Lazarus from the tomb, even though by all their accounts, all their disappointments, they think it's, 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 it's a pointless exercise because he tells them to move the stone away. They say that by now his body's like beyond hope, right? He's been dead for four days. He's, it's, it's, he's, he's in decomposition. So whether or not you think there's a, a chance where he was like, you know, he was just sleeping. He's not sleeping. He's, he's gross at this point. Right? So he says, move, move the stone and just two words. Lazarus, come. And he comes and he's resurrected. And this is the picture that Jesus is showing. This is what I can do. I am the author of life. I give life. And all you need is me to know me. So we're going to finish real quickly in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's, it's not a, a disembodied hope. It's not a hope that's far away. It's not a hope that we can't actually get tangible arms around. To an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. Jesus' report that I am the resurrection and the life is, is just saying, look, if, you, if, if I'm in your life, it's all connected already. So you have a reason for, for hope. This is, the, I'm gonna to skip to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, which talks about the way that our, our, our current afflictions, whether, whether where, it doesn't matter where we're at on the yardstick of our lives. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is your hope. It's not in hoping that you'll get enough stuff on the other side of whatever's left of your yardstick to make you balance life out. Like, if I could get enough things to hope for, then I'll at least be oblivious to the fact that I will die someday. That's, that's foolishness. Root your life in the truth that there is an eternity promise. It's, it's being held for you. That's the rest of that verse Peter in verse 5 and on. It's power. It's being guarded through the faith of salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that by the tested genuineness of your faith, it's more precious than gold. It perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have hope for this life and forever. The resurrection is profoundly important because it promises to you the truth 
So the question is, is this a reality that's, that's disconnected for you or is it right here? And are you, are you anchoring your life into that hope? That's not a question I'm gonna answer for you. That's a question for you to answer. If you're like Martha and Mary and you, you, you've so disconnected that you at the moment would say, I, I thought you'd love me, Jesus. Like, you're not giving me anything I want. I'm giving you everything you need though. The light and momentary afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory that cannot compare to whatever you're experiencing right now. Let these truths sink into your heart, into your spirit. Father, we thank you for the morning. I thank you for um, your word. I thank